Amen. All right. Good morning. Sorry, I don't mean to talk over the fading music there. Did it go? Yeah. All right. There was somebody holding out an organ note. It was very emotional. I didn't want to step on that. But I'm so glad you're here today. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So feel free to turn or tap your way to 1 Thessalonians. We encourage you to have a copy of the scriptures. If you don't, Please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. But we do want you to have them so that uh, you can check what it is we're doing. You can look at the scriptures and see, did we make that up or did God say it and how and why? And does it make sense or does it not? The Bible is our standard of truth here at Hope Church. uh, And we are using it for all the ministry and all the teaching. And uh, yeah, we want you to be checking what we're saying. If you see something in Bible that disagrees with Hope Church and you present that to us, you win. We'll change. Uh, But please understand that that when we're reading through this stuff, we've come to some conclusions about it. You may not share those conclusions. We'll hope to be able to get there together. But we do have a faith. And I want to use that word really carefully because I think a lot of people mean different things when they use that word. We have a faith, meaning that we've established several things as facts. We've stepped from fact to fact. And then looking at this bridge of facts, we've made the final leap to the conclusion about those facts, which is that God's God, that Jesus is God, that the Bible is his word. We can support that with facts, but we had to make that final jump into commitment or into faith. Now, if you give me time, I can point out how every worldview contains quite a bit of faith. Many facts, few facts, whatever, however long a bridge you build, at some point you're going to have to make the leap before you say it's true. That faith can be tenuous. It can be sort of delicate. When we started Hope Church, David and I were on a hike. We were up in one of the mountains in the Wasatch, and we were looking out, and there was, it's like early spring or late fall. It's like snow, but not too much. And in the, you know, whatever, we're looking up, and on the rock, there was a, a flower, just one of the little flowers that comes up in all the shrubs and stuff up there. And it's buffeted about by the wind, and it's in this very harsh place, or it was harsh to us. I mean, I was out of breath. And we're looking at the flower... We just said, like, that's Hope Church. It's beautiful. It's alive. But golly, will it survive? Is it going to be okay? I mean, it seems like it's in danger. How do you keep your faith from failing? Or said differently, which I think is maybe more helpful, how do you assess how firm a foundation you have with your faith. What you're trusting in. Is it something strong or is it something weak? As you're reading Thessalonians, you're reading a story of this guy who helped to start a church. He had to leave because of the way that the city came down on the church. And now he's looking back and he's hoping that they're still going to be faithful. But he's worried. He's not worried about whether or not it's true. He's worried about whether or not they will continue to agree, to believe, to commit to the idea that it's true. 
And this morning, as you read with me his sort of back and forth, his thoughts about that, I want you to ask those same questions. How firm a foundation? Because either you are wondering personally about Christianity. It is our hope and prayer that we are contacting and and, and part of a, a community with people who don't believe in Christianity. We need their doubts in order to assess our faith, but we also think this is true, so we want them to come to faith. And, man, there are so many of you who are concerned. You believe this to be true, and yet people that you love either don't, or they say they do, and you're always worried about at some point they're just going to whoop. At some point, kid's going to go to college, and he's going to come back weird, Something's going to happen. This friend that you had, this person that you saw, maybe it's, maybe it's like Paul. It's people that you are leading to Jesus. And they came to church. Oh, my gosh. And they're investigating, and you're talking with them. And then, glory of glories, we got to baptize them. You saw them get baptized because they committed to believing in Jesus. And then, six months later, you just see them less. They answer your texts less. And you're starting to wonder. You look at them like a parent looks at a child and you just care for them. Paul talked about that in chapter 2 of Thessalonians. He's saying that he looks at these people and he has this intimate care for and willing to sacrifice for them like a mother. Tender care like a mother. That he wants to provide encouragement and exhortation and example like a father. He sees them and he loves them like he would a child. Now that he's got to be far away from them, he's looking back and he's wondering, are they going to stand? I know the foundation's firm, but do they know the foundation's firm? And that gives us the ability to ask this morning how firm a foundation we have. To look at what it is that we are supposed to do for other people in order to support their pursuit of truth, to support their faith. And to be real yourself about what it is that you believe. I said that it's helpful for people who are outside the faith to interact with us so that they can help us to evaluate our faith. We need somebody to help poke us in order to not be lazy about what we've received. To help us to think out the implications of what we think. And is it really that true? And is there maybe something in there that's illogical or broken or wrong? I can say this with all honesty. It took me a while to say it with honesty, but I can say it with honesty. If Christianity is not true, I want to know. I got a lot riding on this thing. If this isn't true, I need to know. I want people to help me to assess. I want to know how firm a foundation I really have. I don't want to be scared that it's not solid. So I want to be willing to take a sledgehammer and smack it and see if it stays. I was talking with Nicole Nystrom as she was walking in about a Nalgene bottle. I don't know if you have one of those Nalgene bottles. It was like college when I first encountered them, which is longer than I think about uh, ago. Uh, But it was like on the beginning of the, like, let's not use 
uh, water bottles, let's use like reusable water bottles so that we don't fill up the ocean or whatever. And this one Nalgene thing, their marketing was it was indestructible. Now, of course, they said that as a like, oh, wow, you're excited about that. But of course, we heard that as a challenge. And so then you start, what can you do? And, uh, cars will break Nalgene's if you run over them. There's guns that'll go through Nalgene's. But in general, wear and tear of a water bottle, they're solid. And if the question is, if the statement is that Christianity is true, there's an automatic challenge in your head where you say, okay, but how true is it? How firm is it? This is what Paul's dealing with. Let's look at it. So it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to start. He's talking about chapter 2 when he says, therefore, he's talking about how there his glory and his crown, the thing he's going to present to Jesus one day. And therefore, when we could bear it no longer, our anxiety about you, our, our questions about whether or not you're staying with it, we could, we could bear it no longer. We're willing to be left behind at Athens alone and send Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith. It's the father words that he was using in the last chapter. Exhort, encourage, example, establish you in your faith. That no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were going to suffer affliction just as it's come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when we could bear it no longer, I sent him, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He's wondering, are they still there? It's not just the, the, the challenge of an intellectual question about the faith. It's a challenge of affliction. It's the challenge of suffering that says, if I'm suffering, can God be good? Can this be true? And Paul's saying, listen, I was telling you from the beginning that this suffering was coming, that this suffering was going to happen. He came to Thessalonica from Philippi, where he had been beaten with rods and had his, his uh, clothes torn off him and his, as he's accused in front of everybody. And they beat him with rods before they threw him in prison. If that was his experience before coming to Thessalonica, it would be real hard for him to say, oh my gosh, if you become a Christian, things are going to go so well for you. How could you say that? While somebody is changing the bandages on your back from the rod beating you took at the last town you were in. No, Paul was telling them affliction would come. And affliction did come. And then as he left, he's looking back and he's wondering, okay, but is their foundation firm? We planted the seed, we watered the seed, but did the miracle happen? Did the growth take place? We're on our second grapevine at our house and it's not because the first one was so wonderful we wanted a second. It's because the first one died a miserable death. And so I went to a nicer nursery and got a nicer grapevine. We're on tender hooks. I don't know what's going to go well right now. I did everything they told me. I mixed in the stuff and I bought the extra stuff that was more expensive to mix in with the stuff. And we're watering it and it's in full sun and yada yada. But will it grow? I've done all I can do. Will it grow? Paul's looking at him, he's wondering, will it grow? How do we make it grow? How do we act so that this growth takes place? Well, 
One thing I want us to notice about his ministry, about the things that Jesus does, or that Jesus sort of, the way in which Jesus takes his message out, first is put people first. Put people first. We'll be very clear about how Christianity is communicated person to person, how somebody's faith in Christianity is strengthened person to person. It is done by people. Verse 6. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, this reason, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you because of your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. He sent Timothy. Paul himself went initially. He's got a relational connection to them. Jesus is all around and behind these verses, but he's not mentioned in these verses. What is mentioned is their relationship to the people, the real historical humans, Timothy and Paul, because God chooses to work through people. I'm sorry, but God chooses to work through people, not just principles. When you start asking people about why they do or don't believe in God, they'll say something like, it doesn't take long, they'll say something like, well, you know, I'd believe if God like burst out of the mountain, if he wrote it in the stars, then I would believe. The implication being that there's no miracles around me, but if a miracle actually happened, if something that was supernatural manifested before my eyes, then I would believe. If somebody struck me over the head so hard with a principle, then just out of fear, out of whatever, yeah, I would believe. But that's not how Christianity works. We're not going to convert anybody at the edge of a sword. We're not going to convert anybody through fear. God has designed his system to bring you to himself through people because God has designed to attract you with love. Love. It says in the scriptures, this is one of the ones everybody knows, whether or not they're Christians, that God is love. And if he wants to show you himself, the first way that he's going to do that is through love. That's why Paul went to this place where he didn't know anybody, but he started to teach and to preach and to try and see them come to know Jesus. It wasn't out of a desire for money. He kept refusing money. He would work. He's a a tent maker. He would work in order to build these churches without having to take any support from them so that the money that they did give to the kind of big till in the middle of the community could be passed out to the poor or, more likely, be used to help Paul go and take the message to another city. He's not in it for the money. He's in it for Jesus, and he's in it for the people. God works through people. Principles, fear, they can only do so much. They can't actually introduce you to a person. And that is exactly what God has come to do for us. See, most systems of thought are exactly that. They're systems of thought. They're principles, they're observations, which may or may not be true about the world around us. The isms, material ism, secular ism, even the ism. 
Those isms, they're, they're systems of thought. But what Christianity is insisting is that God is actually a person who has become a person in order to engage with you as a person. Jesus was not a teacher who introduced a system of thought and then died. And we now can look at his life, look at his teaching, and decide if they match up and if they're credible, if they're good. He came, yes, he's a person, but he also taught and then lived and then died and then rose. The point of Christianity is not to teach you about Christ or just teach you about Christian, Christian thought. It's to introduce you to Christ. It's to introduce you to that love. To try and create some small beachhead in your heart from which to move. See, listen, if you're, if you're thinking about Christianity, trying to understand it, trying to decide if it's true or not, let me just ask you to start with something you know is true. Be deeply personal. In my life, when doubt assails, I've got resources, I've got arguments, but something that has real traction in me is my memory of just giddy joy something that I closely associate with the word love when it comes to Jesus. That that love from God through Jesus stirs me up. And I see it reflected other places. I know what it's like to feel that real, true, genuine love from a friend. By God's grace, I know what it's like to feel real, genuine love from a parent and even from my spouse. I don't know about a lot of other stuff, but I do know about those things. And if Christianity can explain those things and even fulfill those things, expand those things, I'm interested. There's this guy, G.K. Chesterton, whom I love. I think he's just fantastic. He's hilarious. He's been dead 100 years. But he, he, he's a British guy. He's a journalist. He's a Christian and intellectual. And in his, like... Um, pessimism of the soul when he's in college. You know, so it always happens in college. When he's in sort of like British version of college and he's right there in London and everybody's so stylish to be pessimistic and there is no God and, and all the stuff that was taking place right at the end of the 19th century or uh, end of the uh, 20th century. And as he's confronting all of this and thinking about all of this, he's kind of unmade by the fact that there is nothing. And then he has a thought. There's no reason that anything should be. So the fact that things are is unimaginably good. That may mean something to you. It may not. For him, it created this feeling of thankfulness. And he said, on your birthday, you thank people for the gift of slippers and cigars. Am I so odd to want to thank someone for the birthday present of birth? Now, that may mean something to you, it may not, but there could be some traction, some place where you start to say, here is something true. Now, what does Jesus teach me about that? I just encourage you to, to kind of um, stay in your lane a little bit. Here's what I mean by that. We have this sort of proud lie in our community that everybody can understand everything, and that you should. It's weird because we think that at the same time when people are more specialized than they've ever been in human history, but we often think that it's your job to tangle with philosophers and philosophies 
all over the world and all throughout history. That if you're actually going to be a Christian, you need to be able to dance with Schopenhauer and Augustine. That you need to be able to understand in judo with Plato and Augustine and Aquinas and Anselm. That you need to know what Kant thought and be able to show him where he was wrong. Really? <laughs> really? Here's my big example of how you need to stay in your lane. 1985, the Bears won the Super Bowl. They were incredible. They only lost one game all season. Won the Super Bowl and dominated like one big. In that year, a Bears fan <laughs> wrote something uh, of a rap for the Bears, and the Bears did it. And if you go on YouTube, you can find the 1985 Bears doing a music video to a rap that was written called The Shuffling Crew. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I would like for you to pull out your phones and Google it presently. You don't watch it right now, but Google it so that when you're later, you know, looking up something, it'll come up and you'll go, oh, yeah, he talked about it. And then I want you to click on it and listen. I'll just do a little bit of it for you. <laughs> we are the Bears, shuffling crew, shuffling on down, doing it for you. We're so bad. We know we're good. Blowing your mind like we knew we would. You know we're just strutting for fun, strutting our stuff for everyone. We're not here to start no trouble. We're just here to do the... Super Bowl shuffle. Yeah, Super Bowl shuffle. <laughs> now, you don't get to see the lyrics. You just heard me present them. So you're saying like, oh, Ben, all the, all the musicality of it is lost in your presentation. No. I did a better job than the Bears did with those lyrics. Here's what I mean by stay in your lane. Those guys are excellent, were excellent football players. They are not excellent musicians and rap artists. Now, they did a lot of good with that song. A bunch of money was given to charity. You know, don't judge them. But stay in your lane. God has not intended everybody to be able to tangle with every question. So start with what you do know. What do you know about love? What do you know about good? What do you know about meaning? Just start somewhere and then ask about what Jesus says about those things. What does Christianity teach about those things and why? Why is it so compelling to so many people? Let's just start somewhere. And you start to build this faith. God puts people first. Hope Church is going to put people first, showing love so that other people can see and somehow engage with that touchstone, whatever it is for them. Maybe it's thankfulness. Maybe it's glee and joy. Maybe it is just love and faithfulness. Maybe it's something more sort of arid and intellectual. Whatever. You need people to help you to kind of see this stuff. Please let us do that. We will always be putting people first. And another big difference in the way that Jesus and Paul and the examples we have in Scripture differ from how we often live and work is that God takes the initiative. God's people are to take the initiative. Look at the next couple of verses. Verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Do you feel the tone of those words? 
This Paul guy is chomping at the bit. He would love to get back there and get in their face and say, okay, how's it going with your soul? How are you feeling? How are you living? How are you loving? How can I help you see God better? He's not content like a, a specialist to just sit back and wait on patients to show up. If Christianity is supposed to be a care for brokenness, a, a healing place for people to go from away from God to with God, if we are supposed to be these doctors of souls, then it is our job to be like those old school doctors that don't happen anymore that would go out and go to these different places and try and find these houses out in the middle of nowhere and say, okay, how's everybody doing? I'm here, I got my bag, let me set some bones, let me try and help you with that cough, let me teach you, let me help you. Initiative. Many people see Christianity and they want to go the other way. They want to polish up, they want to be perceived well, and they want to sit back and wait. Yeah, they'll come. Somebody will come. They'll want to know, they'll want to talk to me, they'll want to ask me. I'm just going to sit here and be ready. I'm just going to work on me. We're just going to make Hope Church as lovely as we can. That's what we're going to do. We're going to care for everybody, make sure everybody's super happy. That's what we're all about. Really? Is that the example that we get here? No. God sends his people to go, to take his word and to go. Why? Again, love. To look out on people and say, Here's a person who may be really close to God, but is probably far from God. Far from the love of God, far from the acceptance of God, far from the knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take some initiative. And then how? We're going to do it through relationship, through love. We're going to take the initiative. We're going to really push. We're going to put people first, and we're going to take the initiative. We're going to push. And the way that it all is going to come together, we're going to watch God work. He starts with, and the whole pattern of the book is that he's, he's cared for these people. He's come to try and plant this church. This Paul guy is bleeding for them. He's sending his best man, Timothy, to go try and check it out and help him out. And yet, look how he finishes the chapter. Now, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. See, he could plant and other people could come and teach. They could water, but only God could give the growth. He said that in another place in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. There is something miraculous that has to take place. God has to do it. And what we're getting from these scriptures is that God is the one who does do it. There's some dance, there's some interplay between God who is and empowers and does all of these things and the agents, the people, the promises and the warnings that he works through. So you get verses like 1 Timothy 1.12, where Paul says, I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So 
Paul, are you doing it or is Jesus doing it? Well, Jesus is giving me strength and I'm going in his strength to do what he wants me to do, but I'm doing it and mixed. You try and establish those categories really clearly and often it's because you want to be able to say, well, this is what God was supposed to do and I'm going to minimize what I have to do by making this very small box of what's left. That's not what we see here. God is moving, but he's moving through us. So it matters that we go and we take his love to other people. It matters that we live in holiness rather than sin. It matters that we push, that we take initiative, that we are willing to lay down our lives for other people. Remembering our example of Jesus who comes from heaven to earth, but he comes as a servant, even washing the feet of his disciples. All that God may establish, may build, may see others come to know Jesus. Now, what do you do with all of this? Well, if you are a believer, my hope is that you're understanding that this is what I'm saying is our pattern of life and ministry. To see God's love towards us, to be so filled up with it, to be so amazed and astonished that he would love us first... And then appoint us, work on us, try and help us to see some of this stuff and to change some of this stuff. And then, even while he's doing that, to use us to do something meaningful and effective in the world. That you would put people first, that you would take initiative, that you would allow God to work. Watch as God does work. Have faith that while it doesn't seem like it will ever work, yet God does give growth. And if you're somebody who's investigating Christianity, if you're looking at it from the outside, or maybe you've only got one foot on the inside, I just encourage you to see the way in which we would ask you to evaluate Christianity by starting with love. And allow us maybe some opportunity to be that for you. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, activate your people. We always pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We begin our prayers, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, we are praying right now that you would hallow your name, that you would have your people work desperately hard out of love to see other people come to know you and be yours forever. And I pray, Father, that we would be able to example and see people encounter that example of love laying down our lives so that others might get to know the loving sacrifice of Jesus himself. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.